Now I'm here. And now I'm here. And now you're here, dear listener. We can begin. So welcome to episode eight of the Mainframe Performance Topics podcast. We are Marna Wally from ZOS Development in Poughkeepsie, New York. And Martin Packer, Mainframe Performance Guy. So where have you been lately, Marna? You've been to lots of places, I think. Yes, I have. Uh, October has been a very busy month for me. I have I have been to Edge in Las Vegas, with, which was massively large, and I walked about a mile a, a day moving all around. <laughs> it was absolutely fabulous, though. We had a lot of um, a good attendees there. It was wonderful. After that, I went to Johannesburg, South Africa, and met some of my buddies from Z, which was wonderful, and then down to Brazil. That was also very nice and, and talked to some good customers down there as well. So what exciting locations have you been to, Martin? Well, I have spent time, quality time in Buckinghamshire and in Nottinghamshire and in Hampshire. Um, so, oh. so I'm really getting around a lot. <laughs> That's the sheer tour, it sounds like. It is. It's sheer madness, I think. <laughs> anyway, we have some follow-up. Yeah, I think we'll always have follow-up on this because we'll always have something to say about it. And so we have more information about DocBuddy, which was something that we had mentioned in a prior episode, which was one of our favorite apps to look at documentation on our phone with. So iOS got an update to 1.1.1. Yes, and on Android, we have 1.1.2. Ah. So to give you some flavor, oh, you're ahead of us. So, so to yeah, give you we some, are. we're always ahead of you on Android. <laughs> I think we'll catch up and overtake at some point. So the iOS changes um, are, are kind of interesting. So we've added the DB2 messages and ISPF messages, and now, which I think is quite useful, is uh, for each component we've got the size of the download package, so you know what you're in for when you try and download it. Yeah, that's good, and especially if you're tight on size on your cell phone, yeah. So this is, I think, the follow-up that will never end, and so, uh, I don't know, we'll have to kind of have criteria now for how many Doc Buddy updates we're going to have in our podcast, so we'll have to think about that. And we will try not to bore you with the trivial ones, but I do think the addition of DB2 and ISPF messages are significant enough to mention here. Yeah, and, and, and just as a reminder, whenever you have requests for DocBuddy, please send them to the team. They are very active in doing enhancements to it also. We have another piece of follow-up, and that is continuous delivery has been announced for DB2. Yeah, I was really happy to see this because we're, as you know, the major subsystems are, are doing continuous delivery. A lot of IBM products are doing continuous delivery, so I was happy to see that DB2 has announced what they will do in a podcast. They have indicated that they will use a, a single service stream for continuous delivery, which to you and me, that means uh, PTFs. They will start this on version 12 of DB2. So if you're going on 12 higher, you should expect to see some continuous delivery functions, which they are actively announcing too, which is great. So that's ZOS, and that's Kix, and that's DB2, and that's MQ, all talking about what they'll do in continuous delivery terms now. Yeah, the big guys. The big guys on our platforms. Have the big four. Yep, that's it. All right, Martin. So we've got a title of the episode. <laughs> What's the title of the episode? So this episode is called Cue Me Up, and it's a bad pun on... Q versus Q, that's C-U-E versus Q-U-E-U-E. -E -E. Um, and it relates to the performance 
topic in this podcast episode, which is about list structures being viewed as cues. Yeah, but I'm going to also claim it also for the mainframe topic, because as new releases come out, they are queued up for you to migrate to, right? So I think we've got it for both fronts here on this podcast. So our mainframe topic for this podcast is called when to upgrade. And it's something that I've been thinking a little bit more about lately, given that I've kind of got some different information now I've been mulling over a little bit more. And I have quite a bit of experience, actually, of how customers upgrade, or at least when they do, and what their expectations are. So we would like to start this item by talking about our personal philosophies and experience when it comes to upgrading our own personal kit. Yeah, so we know how it is. I mean, my Android phone, a system update is pushed down to me, and I, I just take it. I mean, I just say, do it now. As long as I'm connect to a good Wi-Fi and I've got it plugged into the wall, that's about all I need, and I upgrade it right away. Yeah, and I'm much the same. I'm pretty aggressive with upgrading all the apps on my phone and on the iPads various and on the Mac and upgrading operating systems. So, for example, the latest Apple stuff, within a week of it coming out, and it actually came out in two tranches, so that was two busy weeks. Everything was upgraded that could be, apart from my wife's laptop, which is mission critical right now. So we we, we tend to be fairly uh, aggressive about, about upgrading, but that's not necessarily how other people are. No, and, you know, this is an enterprise software we're talking about here. And if our, you know, personal cell phone goes down, there's not much involved besides, you know, ang anger about it. So I think what I wanted, what I was thinking about more this week is enterprise upgrades and when to upgrade and some ZOS situations that I've been thinking about a little bit more. Right. Yes. So it seems to me, you know, and we've always had this situation and I've always pointed it out, but it just seems to me that it's becoming more relevant and maybe we want to think about it more. But we do have five years of service support on a ZOS release, right? Five years of yep. it going out since GA, right? And we've also got three release coexistence. And given that we put releases out every two years, three release coexistence, three times two is six. So we've got this little bit of a difference here between five years of service and six years, I guess you could say, of coexistence support, although it's not really that because the last year is cut off. So what happens is if people are skipping releases um, and they're they're missing that one in the middle and they go right at the last release, you know, the, the, the two releases up, they've really only got one year to get off of the old release and on to the new release, right? Which isn't necessarily all that long. No, it isn't. And considering that you've got to start, you know, the clock starts ticking the day that GA happens and not everybody orders the release the day the GA comes out, right? And you might be doing other things like a hardware upgrade or a subsystem upgrade. And so this this clock ticking for 12 months is is really not a long period of time, right? Right. No, it's not. Yeah. And so, you know, I've been kind of thinking that this is something that needs to be considered a little bit more with people. People knew it all along, but I'm thinking that maybe we need to revisit that and people need to, to talk about, especially those that are in the skip release cycles for ZOS. 
So the thing is that 12 months may not be long enough, and especially if you don't have a lot of windows in which to do your ZOS upgrade, right? So if you've got 12 months, the clock is ticking from GA. You don't have a whole lot of limited uh, windows to, to pick from to put your ZOS in. I think this is, needs a little bit more respect if you're going to do this skip level migration anymore. Now, the other aspect of this is that, you know, you might find a defect on the release on 2.2, right? You might, I give you the release of ZOS 2.2 as, as an example, because we're starting to see that release 13 is end of service, September of uh, this, you know, September of this year. And ZOS 2.2, which is your skip level release, that came out in September of last year. So the clock is ticking on this. And I've got to make sure that I want to, you know, everybody should be doing this already, but I just wanted to, to mention again that it is really important that you really monitor the enhanced whole data because there's important hyper and PE information in there for the latest release when you're trying to go to, right? Yeah. So let's talk about how it is, as I perceive it, with, with customers who, by the way, at this point, I think most of them are probably on 2.1 now, very few still on 13 probably not that many on 2.2. So let's talk about how, how it appears to be. So my my expectation on this is that people typically upgrade when they have to rather than because there's something compelling that they really want. Yeah, that's absolutely true. The compelling thing is usually it's going out of service <laughs> and they want to remain service supported. So unfortunately, that's, you know, the reality of most cases of it. Although occasionally we do have a function that somebody, you know, has to get to, which is a wonderful thing. But, um, you know, it doesn't it's not overriding. Usually it's that they want to stay service supported. Right. And I think we have to bear in mind that there's a lot of effort and risk uh, limitation to think about when, when it comes to upgrading. So people don't do this at the drop of a hat. No, they don't. Um, and it, it takes a lot of thought and a lot of work and also a lot of investigation for like ISVs and other things involved as well. So it's not a trivial effort by any means. Yeah. And function, as I say, is only sometimes the reason. But there are cases where function is compelling. So one good one I know quite well is for db2 so for most versions of db2 in recent memory in fact basically going all the way back uh virtual storage has been a concern and e each version apart from perhaps the last one version 11 has brought compelling uh improvements to the virtual storage picture so for quite a few customers db2 is a good example where people upgrade precisely because they want the new function it's a very positive reason for going but that to my mind is um, really only an occasional thing so most customers I think will just pick up the function as a byproduct and maybe they won't even notice it's there yeah, you're right. You know, if it's something internal in the infrastructure and it's turned on automatically, they may not even know it's there. And you gave the example of DB2. And I like to think of back in ZOS release 12, we had CA Reclaim coming out of DFSMS. And that was a function that people specifically would move to release 12 for. If they were on 11 and thinking about going to 13, they rethought it and actually moved up to 12 instead of 13 just to get CA Reclaim. So we've got some cases of this in the operating system base as well. But like you said, I think it's sometimes just a byproduct or, you know, they may not even notice that it's there. So it's, it's an interesting thing to think about. 
Now, I want to think about early adopters, right? Because if you're going to skip a release and you've got the clock ticking from when the thing GAs, you've got 12 months, you actually might be into the category now of being an early adopter on those releases. Whereas if you were skipping it, you might not have realized now you're in the category of a skip person and now you're back in the category of an early adopter, which, you know, is a consideration to think of as well. It's a bit like when people upgrade their phones every other year. Suddenly they got the latest and greatest when they're not used to that. And then they go back to not having the latest and greatest the next year. And then <laughs> year again, they're suddenly early adopters again. Yeah, it's like whiplash. You're behind and then all of a sudden you're in the front and then you're back behind again. So right, it's a case right. of whiplash. Yeah, that's and, and, and all of this is against the backdrop of only having really a limited number of upgrade windows. So when I talk to customers, there are only limited weekends or or holiday periods or something they can even do upgrades in. Yeah, and then when when we throw in, you know, who, new hardware upgrades being put in there and, and some folks, you know, they don't want to put their hardware and their software upgrade in the same window, which is totally understandable. Some people do, some people don't. But when you get a, a hardware upgrade in there, those kind of tend to take precedence over operating systems sometimes. And so, yeah, I mean, you start having limited number of windows and you start taking out the ones that you need for subsystems and hardware and you got very little left for ZOS. So, yeah. Hmm. So actually, I'd be quite interested in our listeners' views on, on upgrades and what drives them and what issues they have. So perhaps you'd like to feed back to us. Yeah, I'd like to. And I'd like to hear from people that are skipping releases. And maybe if they're reconsidering going to every release now, that might be an interesting thing. And it might be something that you might want to reconsider if, if it's possible for you. So just as a closeout for this mainframe topic, I think what we've been talking about is... You might want to reconsider if you're uh, skipping releases to go to every other release. Maybe it's time to to entertain in your team a discussion whether you want to go every release uh, because it you know only gives you that 12 month cycle. Make sure you're monitoring the the enhanced hold data, and you know you've got to get within that 12 month window. And if there's any contingency time you need, you know the 12 months does go rather quickly. And now it's time for this episode's performance topic brought to you by Martin. Yes, so, so this topic is called Right on Cue, which is actually the name of the blog post on, on which it's based. And it's all about capacity planning for coupling facility list structures. So traditionally, people tend to treat the various types of coupling facility structure, whether we're talking about list or cache or lock structures um, pretty much the same much of the time and that's fine for certain sorts of things like understanding how much storage they use understanding how much cpu in the coupling facility they, they they use and so on but increasingly in my analysis and indeed in the code to support that i've been treating the different kind of coupling facility structures differently so list differently from lock and lock differently from cache structures because there are aspects of their behavior, quite important ones, that actually are different from different kinds of structures. So a recent incident made me think about list structures a little bit more deeply. And this was a case where a customer's kicks temporary storage structure, well, one of them got full and bad stuff happened. So Martin, at the customer shop, how did this manifest itself? Well, I think they got some strange errors in their Kix test environment. In fact, this was for a, a test pair of Kix regions with a test structure slung between them. So I think they got some application problems. 
but also they were able to establish that the list structure in question had managed to fill up completely. So I think at this point it's useful to just remind people of a couple of examples of list structures. So one I've just mentioned is the Kix shared temporary storage queue structure, of which there can be several in a typical Kix sharing environment. But another one would be MQ shared queues. By the way, MQ shared queues, actually their structure can spill to flash if necessary. You obviously have to define that in, in the coupling facility, but that, that's a, a slight wrinkle on MQ queues at the latest level of MQ. Yeah, I saw that was a recent enhancement that was rather exciting, I thought. Yes. Now, to be honest, I, I don't know of any customer who's actually gone and used it yet, but, but to me, hmm. you could position it as a, um, a larger capacity structure if necessary. Mm -hmm. So, I think one of the things to do when thinking about list structures is to treat them as if they were a kind of pipe. Much like batch pipes, pipes, or Unix pipes. Um, so you have things that write to them, and you have things that read from them, possibly destructive read. So it's kind of like a pipe. Yeah, so why would this pipe get blocked? A couple of things I can think of as, as broad generalities. The first one is, and I think this was the case in this customer case, um, some kind of application breakage. Let's say the writer wrote an awful lot of stuff to the queue, or and it's kind of similar in some ways, the reader just failed to take stuff off the queue and, and, and clear down the entries in, in, in the queue. That's one scenario. Another one is what's loosely known as market open, where you have a sudden burst of legitimate traffic, probably in production, I would think, rather than test, which would cause the queue to fill up, maybe to completely fill, if you haven't sized it properly. So you brought up size. So how would I monitor and size this pipe correctly or the, the list structure? Well, I think you can do things with display commands, but that's probably not the best way of doing it on a continual basis. So really, there's a couple of things in RMF that I can think of. One of them would be monitor three, which has reasonable granularity. And the other one is actually to use the Cupping Facility Activity Report data, which would be SMF 74 sub, subtype 4, which will give you the current number of entries and the maximum number of entries the list structure can contain. So the interval for the SMF 74, 15 minutes, that's not great granularity. It, it's not wonderful granularity. Um, 15 minutes, by the way, is the default, but very few customers really change the RMF default, certainly not to anything significantly lower. So I think that's right. So, so if you had automation with Monitor 3, maybe that's your best bet if you think you're prone to short-term spikes. I do think, however, that RMF is perfectly fine for longer-term capacity planning and understanding if you even look like you might be approaching full. So RMF, SMF, or Monta3 are really the, the prime ways of, of handling this sort of thing. And one thing to think about is, well, what kind of spikes do I typically see? So if I'm in the market open scenario then I probably want to monitor that and understand what that typically looks like and understand to leave some room for growth in there. The other thing to think about though is, uh, maybe this is a good place to wrap up actually, is if you're sizing structures well why don't you just make them as big as you please? Well 
the answer to that is there are some downsides to oversizing structures which aren't necessarily apparent. All right, so I hear oversize, but my first question is how much is oversizing? Well, I would think if you have the structure size being, let's say, two-thirds of the maximum size, that's probably fine. If you were to have the structure size be, let's say, less than half the maximum size, then you might be beginning to get into a territory where um, you don't actually get much data because the control blocks are allocated as if the size was the max size and you end up with control blocks and not a lot, lot of data. So, so you know, I, I think a certain amount of pragmatics in this. Um, but bear in mind, on the other hand, that if you run into a need to create a structure larger than your max size, then that's a structure reallocation, which is a lot more disruptive. So you have to be careful. I would say if the max size is uh, more than you know, twice the, the current size, you're beginning to get into the oversized territory. Mm, okay. Good, good rule of thumb and uh, peace of mind there. Yeah, and, and as always with rules of thumb, um, more detailed analysis is probably required. So this, this item really was to encourage people to look at the structures in, in terms of pipes and to look at um, conditions that could lead to them being full and set up appropriate monitoring and analysis. So this episode's topics topic is one of Mana's. Yeah, I'd like to talk about Waze, W-A-Z-E. It's a it's an app that I've noticed. Actually, I was pointed to it when I was using Uber, and I saw this guy using this app, and I said, what is that? And he said, it's Waze. All the Uber, Uber people use it. And so I kind of got hooked on it. And what it is is it's uh, kind of a travel map kind of app that I have on my phone, and it really it uses crowdsourcing a lot. So the contributors that are users of Waze, I can see what other people are doing, and so I can really get pretty interesting information when everybody contributes to it. So the thing that interested me about this, first of all, is how the data is actually input. Uh, and I did a tiny bit of research on this, and it boils down to the following things. So... The maps are apparently uh, ways user-generated. They're not using any of the standard mapping um, libraries or anything like that, apparently, which, which is a bit of a surprise to me. And apparently parts of the world are not actually mapped out at all. So they're quite good at telling you uh, the provenance of, of, of the data from that point of view. Um, and, yeah, so, so, so that, that's how the data is input. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I didn't know that myself. Um, I just know the route that I usually take is very well traveled by a lot of people. And I usually keep it open for trying to find out where to go from here to there because I'm horrible with directions. But also I'd like to look at uh, the best way to get there. And because there's a lot of people on the same path that I am, I look at traffic and things like that. So it's it's been really interesting. But what I get to see along the way is things that are coming up. Like, uh, let's say that there's debris on the road or there is, you know, an accident ahead or there's a policeman or, or something like that. Uh, people can register that this is something that's happening. And then in real time, I can see that something is coming up or I can also clear that, you know, the debris has been removed or the accident's been cleared. So it's it's really good type of dynamic current information that comes right from the users. Right, so I gather that to achieve a lot of that, you have to basically keep the app open all the time, as I think you just said. 
And that seems reasonable to me, although there might be some uh, issues with actually doing it, um, making sure the app stays open, particularly if your phone is locked up. But what about something that could be disruptive to the driver, like inputting the presence of a police car or debris? Yeah, they 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 kind of have that at the beginning when you're using Waze. You have to say, you know, I I know that it's dangerous to to input when I'm driving. I know, but also they have like single buttons so that I can just push, you know, policeman right here, you know, and it kind of just registers it very quickly. You're not supposed to, you know, technically be using it when you're driving, but uh, if it's if you can just kind of reach over fast enough, you shouldn't be doing it. But you know, it's easy enough to do if you wanted to. But it implies you've got your phone in a cradle of some sort, whereas mine is actually. Uh... In in the center console of the car, and I can't get at it easily. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, it does, and it, it does stay on. Um, so it uses battery, so I often have it plug into the the lighter charger to to charge. Um, and it does eat data. My gosh, it eats data. So you got to make sure that you're on a decent data plan for it too. So uh, what I really like about it is that I can see the average speed on certain roads that I'm going on. So I can tell if there's a slowdown ahead and if I'm, you know, going that average speed or when it's going to clear up as well. So this idea of average speed on the road is it's for all of the users, which I think is interesting. Yeah, so it seems to me very similar to something we have in the UK. And it's not just unique to the UK, because I know around Paris, for example, it's also there which is uh, signs telling you how long it's going to take to get to some specific waypoint on, on the road. So that's kind of similar, but in this case, it's actually in your phone. <laughs> yeah, you know, I never believe that. Whenever I go over the Whitestone Bridge to get to JFK or LaGuardia, they, or they give you the times to JFK. I never trust those things because I don't know where they come from. And I'm not sure if the users have contributed to it. It's just, you know, what the whatever the road people want to put on some sign in minutes, that's about it. So I really trust Waze a lot more than those signs. Well, I guess it's using actual GPS data, as, as we say, crowdsourced from a lot of users, so it should be reasonable. Yeah, I, I guess. I just, I'm not very trusting of that. I tend to trust Waze more now. And um, also, it's it's got some advertising a little bit in it, too. So be aware that, you know, there's a... A, a vendor of unhealthy snacks that have a hole in the middle of them that people find very popular here that also is advertised heavily on it. So I can tell when one of those establishments is coming up. Hmm. Might add time to your journey as you deviate. <laughs> That's true. So, you know, I... I I just think it's been a very helpful app, and you know, given that Uber uses it a lot, all the Uber drivers that I've seen tend to be, be using it, so I think it's been a, a pretty nice app to use, and I like it. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like a useful one. I mean, for my part, I've actually downloaded it onto my phone and signed in, and I wanted to put my uh, house as a, as a waypoint on it, and the next thing it asked me to do was to take a photograph of my house. So I guess I should be annoying to all my neighbors and take photographs of their houses and put them in too. That's a little cheeky of them to want to see pictures of everything, huh? I don't know. I don't know if I would have done that or not. Did you do it? Uh, no, I, I was tempted because all I want to know is how long it's going to take me to get home, like most sane people want to know. So yeah, yeah. I, I, could, I could end up doing it, I suppose, but it, it's slightly creepy. But you know what? I was just thinking I was using it for a parking garage in the, the New York City. And so it said, you know, do you want to take a picture of the parking garage when you arrived? And I said, well, you know, it's the parking garage. Of course, I'll take a picture of it. But then I found myself I was using other people's pictures that, you know, this is what the parking garage or the entrance to this looks like so that I knew I was there. 
because I have such a bad sense of direction. If I can see a picture of what it looks like, I know where I need to go. So actually, I've used that type of information. So having your house on there, I don't know a house. So parking garage and restaurant entrance is a different thing. So you just reminded me of something. So traditionally, when I park my car in a large parking garage, I've actually taken a photograph to identify where it is. Uh, and one thing that's new in iOS 10 is actually it will automate giving you location information of your car. So if you unplug your car, uh, your phone rather, from the Bluetooth to the car, which isn't really unplugging, but you know, disconnect, it will actually mark on Apple Maps where your car is if you if you let it. So um, yes, parking garages and me. Oh, that, that's cool. That how close can it get to where your car is, and especially like level information if you're on level two or three in the same general area. I, I don't know how good is that. Uh, well, to be honest, I've not tried it on a multi-story car park, um, so so don't really know. Maybe some listener has had some experience with this one. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm sure you'll try it out and, and let us know then. Okay, so that was our topic. Topic was uh, ways and how cool we think it is, and it's nice to have, see crowdsourcing to contribute to this type of information, which I I have trust in. Yeah, I like innovative ideas like this. So we close out this episode as we close out every episode by talking about places where we expect to be in the new future. Well, I'm going to an interesting little spot in the UK called Whittlebury Hall for GSE UK on November 1st and November 2nd. And I think we've got some exciting things going on there, right, Martin? I think we have. And yes, I, I will be there too. By the way, how many how many presentations are you doing? Because I'm doing three. Oh my gosh. I think it's either three or four. I haven't uploaded them yet. I have them done. I just haven't uploaded them yet. But we're also going to, yeah. How many are you doing? I'm I'm doing three across three. two okay. tracks. So they're working as hard. Yeah. I only go one track. So I'm a, I'm a mono track person, I guess. Yeah. I, I think I'm invading your track if I remember correctly. <laughs> you always do. Yeah. And, you know, uh, we do want to mention that Martin and I are going to try something in Whittlebury Hall while we're together. We are going to have a roving microphone and being talking to people. And, you know, perhaps you could be on our podcast as a small snippet if we like what you say. Right. <laughs> uh, if you're not very careful, you could well end up on a future podcast. So uh, once we worked out the technical kinks on this one, because we had some fun and games with um, Sao Paulo. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we will get that worked out, and then we'll have some uh, roving mic hopefully happening. And also, I will be in Austin, Texas the week of the 14th of November. And after that, I am done for the year. I'm staying home. Well, uh, that week I'll be in Amsterdam, and after that, I haven't a clue. I have no idea where I'm going and when. It's that time of year. I hope you get to stay home at the end of the year, because you've been doing as much traveling as I have. So... Before we go, let me mention that, as always, we welcome feedback, whichever way you want to give it to us, maybe by commenting after the show notes or whatever way you like, emailing us and, and so on. So we do welcome your feedback. Okay. The next usual section is on the blog. So, Martin, as usual, you have blog status and I don't. So why don't you talk about your blogs? Right. So let's, let's uh, move on from the blog post we mentioned earlier in this episode to another one called Transaction Counts which is all about how to count transactions in RMF workload activity report. And the other one on a completely different subject, not even performance related really, is the one called Automatic for the Peephole, which I appreciate is a really contorted title. 
Yeah, it is, it is funny. It, it took me a second to look at that, and I said, you know, I knew that from the past. It took me a second to kind of get it. So Right, so the cultural reference you got, obviously, and I hope our listeners do do too, but basically it was about some experiments with using the Apple Watch, various different ways to take dictation and turn them into emails, exercising different forms of automation, both within the device and also via web-based automation. So that was different from the usual performance stuff I talk about. Yep, a, a topics topic in your podcast. So if you want to contact us, I am Marna Wally on Twitter, I am M-W-A-L-L-E, and my email is M-W-A-L-L-E at us.ibm.com. And I'm Martin Packer. My email is martin underscore packer at uk.ibm.com. And my Twitter handle is martin packer. So it goes. <laughs>